Hey guys, this is Anand Shippy from Anantech.com. Uh, here we are with episode five of the Anantech podcast. Uh, this is a bit of a special episode. Um, once again, it's just uh, myself and Brian Klug, our senior smartphone editor. Hey guys. Um, so Brian is actually in Korea right now. I'm back home in Raleigh. We were both in San Francisco last week. Um, initially, uh, I was there for the Intel developer forum, and and you know Brian joined me for the launch of the iPhone five. Um, this is a special episode because we're primarily going to focus on that, although we will have a little bit of discussion about Haswell in here as well. Um, so, Brian, how's Korea? Is, are we allowed to say why you're in Korea yet? I, you know, I don't know if that's, I don't know if we are, but it's okay. pretty obvious, I think. I, I don't think we have said yet. Okay. Well, there's, post, there... it'll probably be obvious. We'll see. Okay. That's good. Um, obviously, there are a lot of companies in Korea. Um, and, Brian, this is your first time in Korea? That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I can't read any of the text. Obviously, I don't speak Korean, but um, so far it's been good. Yeah, no, no real problems. Although there's and, a typhoon um... that's going to come this <laughs> evening. So we'll see how that goes. It's already raining co- kind of considerably outside. <laughs> it's, so it's like a major departure from Tucson. Oh, yeah, this is definitely a major departure. But I mean, like, I'm, like rain for me is pretty novel. So I'm not like, oh, no, it's, it's too bad that it's raining. I'm like, yeah, it's raining. This is, you know, like, what's this stuff? <laughs> so so it, it doesn't rain in Tucson much at all? Um, not until it's like monsoon season. You know, okay. like actually right now it's, it's been rainy, but then it kind of stops. And then it's, it's sort of novel. But... <laughs> um, and, and you've been, uh, so, so obviously there are a lot of, um, uh, and what, what, um, what part of South Korea are you in right now? I'm in Seoul. So the okay. capital, just like downtown, right in the center of things. That's awesome. I've never been. So it's, it, can you explain like what's, what's the, describe where you are? What's the, I don't know, if you're writing a review on it, what would it sound like? How would you describe it? Um, I don't really know. I haven't, I haven't gotten a, enough of like a look at everything. I mean, obviously this is a mega city. So, so far it seems really nice. I mean, the places that I've seen have been really clean um obviously well well off well to do i mean yeah it seems it seems like they have a lot of great things we're going to do some sightseeing later i believe get to go to the dmz see some other sites i guess but um yeah i'm pretty impressed obviously yeah the the, the thing for me has been you know like this is the land of internet you know like internet <laughs> is really fast here like the hotel, so how fast the hotel is really fast is, a, is like 100 megabits you know, and the cel- cellular stuff is 20 megahertz LTE that they gave us. So I'm, I'm having a field day. But So put it in perspective, what kind of LTE do we have here in the States? In the U.S., it's all 10, 10 megahertz uh, is the channel bandwidth. Uh, and AT&T has some 5 megahertz markets. And, and then what's the relationship between channel bandwidth and speed? Directly proportional. So like um, maximum that you can get on 10 megahertz is like 73 megabits if you're on a category three device mm-hmm. and you're in the best conditions. Maximum that you can get on 20 megahertz is 100 megabits for a category three, 150 for category four. So oh, wow. yeah, there's a considerable difference. Now, it's what, what's the highest you've ever seen uh, in the US? Like when I did the um, Galaxy S2 Skyrocket, wh- whatever they called that thing, uh, on AT&T LTE in DC, I think I hit maybe just under 60 megabit, like something in the upper 50s? That's like the maximum, yeah. You can't really get much faster. You can get close to 70. I've seen, I've seen some people hit maybe 70. Um, 
there's one guy on Twitter who I, I talk to regularly. He he in New York City always goes to some Starbucks, I believe, and there's a DOS endpoint in there, and he can get like 70 on Verizon. <laughs> That's but, awesome. Yeah, it's really hard to go. Like 73 is the maximum and includes overhead, so you should be able to get really close to it. But okay. yeah, 60s and 70s are pretty much the highest I've ever seen. Now, have you gotten, have you broken that yet in, in Korea or you just haven't walked around enough no, yet? No, I, to... I haven't. But I mean, I'm in like, I'm in a hotel and it's downtown, so I don't expect that I'll get, get to, you know, break that. But maybe, maybe walking around a little bit more, I'll, I'll find a little bit better. So far, it's been like 20s, 30s, which is still pretty, pretty amazing for, you know, a big urban area. But we'll see. Now, so the you said the the um, relationship between channel bandwidth and, and speed is is directly proportional. Yeah. Um, there, there's also that trade off for you know simultaneous users, isn't it? Isn't there? Like it's it's. Yeah, there's more subcarriers. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, an OFDMA system like LTE, yeah, you you multiplex, you know, both with the code. So there is some you know like code division, multiple access, uh, and then you also. You know, it depends on whether you're getting all the subcarriers or, you know, you get a subset. Um, so, yeah, it is it is proportional. The capacity scales that way. Gotcha. So and it, actually, it really doesn't so, make sense to run like two 10 megahertz LTE carriers. Just go for the 20. Okay. And now is that 20 up and down or 20 aggregate? It's 20 up and down. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so you discussed kind of max... On, on category three for 10 megahertz and, and 20 megahertz, what is it for five? Category five? No, 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 for five megahertz channel bandwidth. Oh, you know, I, I don't know. See, it doesn't, it isn't, it isn't exactly proportional. It depends on okay. how many subcarriers there are. And I don't, I don't have that math in front of me, but you can, you can calculate from the subcarriers. Okay. Five, I forget. I need to, I guess I should figure that out for the AT&T markets. Because I know you're in, you're in Raleigh and that's, that's another five megahertz market. Yes. There's a there's a few of them. All the ones that they announced um, when they did that announcement earlier this month, when I was in New York, that all yeah. those new markets that they lit up were ten, except for one, which I can't remember. Is but, now AT and T is bringing LTE to Tucson finally. Is that going to be a ten or a five? That's ten. Yeah. So oh, nice. I mean, you can look that up just on the Spectrum dashboard and see what what licenses AT and T has in your market, and then from there it's pretty obvious. You know, just look at the 700 megahertz band. Um, and then you can you can immediately tell what they're going to run. So, yeah, I know in my market they have ten, so there's no reason that they're not they're not going to you know go for the full ten. And whereas in yours it's they only have five, so they can only run five. And then they have AWS holdings, and later on the AWS holdings will start getting lit up, and we'll see that see that happen, which will be interesting. Yeah, so I'm curious, what, what happens... So AWS is... What, what frequency is AWS? That's 1,700 and 2,100. So you have the uplink on 1,700 and the downlink on uh, 2,100. So they have them... They have it split up a lot like that just because that was what was available at the time. So we're, you know... But yeah, it's 1,700 and 2,100. But it's not, it's not like both are on that sort of band. And I'm doing air quotes because... You know, the uplink and the downlink are separated by a substantial amount. Like, I think it's it's like 400 megahertz. Yeah, that's right. 400. Um, and then when, when AT&T or, or starts using AWS for LTE, what is going to happen to all their 700 megahertz deployment? They'll keep that around. Yeah, this okay. would be a way to boost capacity, you know, and um, maybe in the future aggregate 
you know, both of them together. And, you know, eventually Verizon has to do the same too. They have AWS, but they just haven't started, they haven't done anything with it yet. And everybody's kind of holding their breath, waiting for when that happens. And it has to happen eventually. Otherwise, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But, yeah, so, we'll see. <laughs> you know, when you say that they, they're going to use AWS to, to kind of boost capacity, how will that work on a device level, right? Will you just have devices that, that'll work on, on 1,700, 2,100, and, and 700, and then it'll just switch depending on what's available? Yeah, that's right. So you'll support both. I mean, it's basically how it works right now. So you have 850 and 1900 for Verizon and CDMA 3G. Uh, and then, you know, you just get handed off between them and they sort of load balance. And of course, you know, even if you have a device that's 700 only, then the load balancing takes place with the other users no longer being only on 700 exclusively. So like, you know, band 13 for Verizon will start being less loaded. I gotcha. If they, if they deploy AWS, band 17 will start being less loaded if you're on AT&T. But I mean, already AT&T has devices that are, you know, what is it? It's band 4 and 17. So those already are out there. But Verizon doesn't have any that will do 4 and 13 currently, just for whatever reason. Okay. So, yeah, we'll see going forward what it works out to. This is a little bit of speculation, but yeah. And, and do you have like a time frame for when, when you're expecting this to happen on AT&T? The state I mean, AWS stuff? I would yeah. say like 2013. It has to. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of LTE, um, a phone got announced recently with LTE support. <laughs> <laughs> um, Finally. Brian, so, so this was your, your first Apple event. What is your... Take, take people... So do you want to explain to everyone how that whole thing works? Or do you want me to give the, the kind should, of overview? You should give it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> what you mean the whole thing works on like how you get... How, how does one actually get to go to one of those events? No, or? no, no. The, the, uh, just the, how the event unfolds, right? So, oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this is like pretty standard fare for any major event. I mean, you stand in line for like hours beforehand and then you get released. And <laughs> depending on how the event coordinator has done their job, it's either like a, a mad dash. Like, literally, in the case of Google I.O., I sprinted all the way around Moscone twice in a you know a suit with a backpack full of camera equipment and then up the escalators and then through the through the like seating area to the very front and then took my seat and was like completely drenched in sweat and like out of breath <laughs> because it's not like you go jogging in a suit with like a backpack that weighs 40 pounds yeah but in the Apple Apple event it was like the the venue is very small and it was pretty orderly, I think. No, I thought it was very orderly. Part. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, so, so it, you know, the event started at 10 a.m. Um, if you want a decent seat, you have to get there around 8 a.m. Um, and you, you line up. At, at 9 a.m., they start registration. So you move from one line to making sure that you're allowed into the event to a next line where you wait for the next hour. Yeah. And Apple's got, like, refreshments and stuff there. But no one's really eating because everyone just, no one wants to give up their spot in line. Exactly. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, yeah, I was thankful that, you know, Brian was there because it actually, you know, he could hold my spot where I like I just inhaled a croissant or something. Um, so then you wait in that that second line and, and that second line kind of stopped being a line. Like, I guess everyone just lost all sorts of manners and, and it just turned into a giant blob. Um, That's normally how things go, too, is that um, there's a lot of 
pressure to get a good seat. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, whatever you need to do needs to be done to get a good seat. Yeah. I feel like we didn't, we weren't too bad, right? I didn't like step on anyone or push anyone. No, we're never that way. But I'm saying, you know, like there are other people who are, um, <laughs> what, what should I say? They're more aggressive, you know, like, but I mean, that, that comes with the territory, I guess. I'm yeah. not holding it against anybody. No. So, so, um, you know, like 15 or so minutes, you know, doors open and, and the like just blob of the amorphous blob of press are, are funneled into, uh, the venue. And then we all kind of sit down and then it's just unfolding of everything. Notebooks, cameras, uh, Brian, you bought a, you brought a USB hub, right? Like yeah, I've what started bringing a hub. Yeah. And so you I mean, had, yeah, I don't know. So this particular one I wanted, I don't know. I've had this dream for like forever now of bringing a spectrum analyzer to the Apple event just to see what Wi-Fi looks like ever since the like iPhone four demo with Bluetooth that didn't work. And ever since the, um, there was an IO demo with like a Logitech keyboard that had Bluetooth that didn't work. And so obviously I was like, why does nobody, why does nobody have an iSpy or something? Cause I know the event coordinators must have one like, getting the Wi-Fi straight at these events is not, is not like a small concern. It's like something you throw at least, you know, tens of thousands of dollars at yes. and hire people. And so I know they have it, but I wanted to see what it looks like because to me that's cool. So I brought a hub and it's because on the MacBook Pro, obviously the USB ports are like, they're spaced like two millimeters apart. And if you throw an LTE dongle on there, you immediately can't use the other port. And and we needed to do tethered capture because if you bring an iFi card, it's just not going to work. Yeah. And juggling around SD cards doesn't work either because the SD card reader doesn't work on the MacBook Pro unless you yeah. like jam it in. So so I brought in I brought in a hub and plugged in like three things into it. It was like the the LTE dongle, the, the iSpy card, and then the tethered capture like mini USB to the Nikon camera thing. So, yeah. And how did the hub work? So I, I haven't actually used a hub in like... Years? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I use whatever's like built into the keyboard or to a monitor or something like that. What, did you, sure. is this a special hub or just one you got for free somewhere? No, I actually bought this one. Like I was, so I was in an office depot with one of my parents yeah. Uh, like with my dad, I think. And he was like, I need to buy some paper or something or like index cards. And I saw like, you know, in the checkout aisle, they have like all this other like junk. Yes. And I saw this USB hub and it was made for notebooks and it folded up and the cable like stowed away and, and it was really compact and the spacing between the USB ports was great. And it was only like $10 or something. So I was like, wait, I need to buy this like right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I bought it and yeah, it's worked, it's worked great for a while, but I mean, so it's like who, four ports. It's a USB two hub. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and who's the manufacturer? You know, I don't, I don't really know. It's like something generic. Okay. I just went um, for like whatever, whatever was there. Well, really. cause that's always the, the issue with these kinds of things, right? Like, um, I, I always just end up using whatever the, the free USB hub is that I get from whoever. Uh -huh. And most of the times it's terrible, right? Like it doesn't work or it can't transact data quickly enough. And I guess that's what I get for just using free USB hubs. Um, that's like the, the USB storage. Like I yes. told you this, but you know, the ASUS, one of the SUS events we were at, like I think it was the Transformer Prime event. 
right at Mobile World Congress. They were handing yes. out those uh, USB like they look like keys, like the C key. Mm-hmm. And I got one because, of course, I didn't want to pass it up because it looks cool. And when I got it home, I noticed that it would corrupt whatever I put on it. And it would like corrupt it on a read. I remember we talked about this. It wasn't a, a corrupt on a write. Yes. A corrupt on a read. And so I set up a script and I would write uh, using DD like 100 megs to the disk and then wait half an hour and then do an MD5 sum on it. And literally throughout the day, it would keep changing. And it, <laughs> it was just amazing because it was like you could use this for random number generation. It kept corrupting so good. Yeah, because that, that's actually, you know, uh, that's something SSD controllers have to worry about, right? So the, when you when yeah. you grab a, like a word line or whatever and you, you read it, there's a chance that it'll disturb the adjacent cell and like knock a bit out of place, um, which yeah. I, I, I remember Intel, they, uh, when they introduced the X25M, geez, like four or five years ago, four years ago, I guess now. Uh, they were like, hey, look, this is a problem. You know, not all controllers do this well. They don't take into account read disturb and all this other stuff. And, you know, I just thought nothing of it. I was like, oh, you know, that's probably not a big deal. I can't see anyone shipping a drive that does that. But in the consumer, like, USB commodity flash storage space, that totally happens regularly. Yeah. Oh, so actually the hub is a Targus. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. That's the... Targus model ACH one fourteen US. Yeah, so that hub is sweet. I can confirm <laughs> that it works. That's good. That's good. Working. <laughs> working hub recommendations are important. Um, so we sat down. Uh, the reason tethered capture was such a big deal is this was our first. This is technically our third live blog ever of all time, um, and our first at an Apple event. So we made the decision to do a live blog the weekend before the event. Um, John, our, uh, our web developer, developed a live blog engine for us. In like uh, one day, right? Yeah, he developed and tested it in a, in a matter of two days, but it was, it was functional after you know, sub-24 hours. Um, we load-tested it during the IDF Day 1 keynote, which was kind of low volume, so it wasn't a big deal. Load tested it again during the Haswell architecture disclosure later that day. Um, and that was pretty good. We, we, we kind of peaked at like roughly 300 megabits per second of traffic outbound. Um, and then we kind of re-architected a bunch of stuff, beefed up the server infrastructure, um, you know, spun up more VMs, and you know, really went at it during the, the iPhone live blog. And... Uh, so, so high-level stats, we served over a billion packets. Um, we pushed out nearly a terabyte of data, um, and, and we, we actually maxed out gigi, um, gigabit Ethernet on, on some elements of our network. So there's, we got tons of data captured from all of this. We're going to be able to re-architect a, lot, a bunch of cool stuff with the site going forward to, to ensure that we're uh, uh, even more prepared in the future. But, but the site stayed up, and... Uh, there were a bit of slowdowns, and, and I actually, I broke the engine. Um, I accidentally, well, I tried to correct a typo, and we didn't have typo correction support in yet. So so if you were watching the live blog and the page stopped auto-refreshing and you had to manually refresh it, that's I, I broke that. That's um, I'm the reason for that. Um, there was like an all-caps email that was like, don't change this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so... Uh, so yeah, we, we live vlogged the event. Um, afterwards, 
they kind of shuffle us into a separate building where they, uh, you know, had a surprisingly few number of iPhones. Hey, do you know, did you ever count to see how many iPhone 5s were there? I think there were six per table and they had two tables. And there were, the two other tables were um, all dedicated to iPod Touch and iPod Nano. Okay. But you, you see, missed that, the best part. See, like the best part is the like everybody packing up really quickly. That's the thing. It's like you have to unpack quickly because you need to take your seat, but also you need to be able to get out like immediately. And that's yes. that's the most important part at least for me. So I just like ripped I just unplugged the hub and like shoved everything into one pocket. <laughs> you know, and the notebook goes in like the other pocket and then it's like we we need to immediately run off. What's funny is as quick as we were being to like, you know, this is a traditional kind of auditorium, you know, there were, we were on the left side of the auditorium, there were maybe six or seven seats in, in our row. And uh, Brian and I are like maybe the two or three seats in from, from the aisle. And as quick as you and I were to put stuff in, the two dudes to the left of us, like just had a MacBook Air, right? Like, so they shut that MacBook Air and they're ready to go. And like, I was feeling so bad because clearly they wanted to run out of there and go play with the phone. And we were taking an eternity in their eyes. Like I could oh, see yeah. the frustration. And yeah. then eventually they just started climbing over seats to get around us. Yeah, exactly. Like I wasn't super fast because I have all this stuff. Yeah. But that's always the, the difficult part is getting out really quickly. And you know what stuck with me is that that venue looks a lot bigger on the video than it is in person. Like in person, it is pretty tiny. Yes. This is the Yerba Buena. Is it the center of the arts? Yeah. Uh, center for the arts or something yeah okay it is really small like i don't know how many people i don't i, don't, I wouldn't give a guess that i'm going to be held accountable to but i mean i is, wouldn't consider it small. i wouldn't consider it to be super small but like compared to moscone center which is where idf is where wwdc was um it's it's obviously like in a completely different tier of size yeah compared um, to the other event venues it's just like very very small so the phone got, got announced. We got to the four tables in the room. That's yes. <laughs> and then you proceeded to to do a demo. And this video, I, first of all, I want to apologize. I did a horrible job working the camera on the video. <laughs> if you saw our hands-on video, it was just really, really bad. We were rushed. I was actually more focused and interested in the, the phone itself. Like, I wasn't paying attention to the viewfinder, so I did a terrible job there. But Brian did an awesome job, like, actually demoing all the features um so how do you want to do this do you want to do you want to go over what the phone is you want to go through your impressions sure i mean i I want to hear your impressions as well i think i think in terms of the the phone itself we should probably go through what's new but i think we did a pretty good job calling most of what what you know ended up being in the actual iphone 5 minus the soc but you know we came very close there yeah um so let's save the soc discussion for last because there there's a, a that's just an interesting story. Um, so <laughs> yeah. iPhone 5, obviously. Uh, so you said something several months ago, right, where, where you listed the three things that you can have and you can only pick two of them when it comes to uh, putting out a product and, and controlling leaks about it. What, what was your, your, your axiom on that? Well, it was like, uh, what, were, what were they? They were like you can have, price, you can have... volume, and uh, secrecy. I think yes, and you can only really have two, and I I think I think that just works in general, and you've seen the secrecy go away just because, like the volume of these products has grown four x, you know over I think it was the four, so 
don't don't quote me on this, but I mean, obviously, there, there's been like asymptotic growth in terms of the iPhone line. So whereas you could have secrecy with the iPhone and the iPhone 3G and the 3GS and maybe the 4 to some extent, even though that was kind of a fiasco, now things have largely gone away. You know, with the 4S and the iPads, we saw almost everything we needed to see months before. With the 4S, I mean, the, with the 5, we basically had the phone ready to assemble in terms of all these parts leaks like months ago. So, yeah. And really the only, the only solution to that would be if Apple brought its manufacturing to the U.S. Um, and controlled well, it, it completely. Its own, yeah, bought its own manufacturing. Yeah, um, which, which is obviously cost and everything prohibitive. Um, yeah, it's never going to happen, right? It's never going to happen as long as they want to keep, what is it, 70% margins on these things? So, yeah, I mean, like QED, there's nothing really else to say. <laughs> right? Okay, so, so what did we know? We knew the size of the display, so it goes from 3.5 inch, um, well, what is it, 960 by 640 to 4 inches, 16 by 9, uh, 1136 by 640? I think it was like 1116 or something, yeah. Yeah, so, so display gets taller, no wider. Um, and, and Apple handle, you know, Apple's done really a, a very good job about handling, you know, all sorts of resolution changes, um, across all of its, its product lines. So in, in this case you have, uh, you know, obviously iOS six now supports, you know, a taller display, uh, you can run older apps on it. You just get black bars either around the side or the top, uh, depending on, uh, on what orientation you're holding it in. Um, and then it shouldn't be that difficult for folks to update their apps and, and kind of enable support for the new resolution as well. Yeah, and you're right, it's 1136. Yeah, I mean, part of that to me is the ecosystem is just so big now, there's no way they could make a huge change. So getting taller keeps most of that pretty much the same. And it seems like most apps now are designed to be portrait only. You know, like the the landscape view comes as an afterthought. Yeah. So, you know, extending it and just making it a big list view is pretty, is, you know, I don't know, it's a pretty obvious thing to do. And it, it does help in a lot of use cases. So what are your thoughts on the usability of the display, right? So it's, it's, it's bigger. Um, well, but obviously no there was this great picture that got passed around that was like, oh, the thumb radius is the constraint. Remember, like everybody yeah. was, and I said this too, I remember we said this that the thumb radius constraint is something that will just magically go out the window when the iPhone needs to get bigger. And that's exactly what happened. Like, it just went out the window. And the other thing is that all these people have been sort of drawing the thumb radius from the bottom corner, but that's not how you hold a phone that's this big. That's just not. You hold yeah. it, you know, like an inch up from the bottom corner. And then your thumb radius, instead of being like a quarter circle, becomes like a hemisphere you know, or like a half of a circle. So instead of it being, you know, this problem where I can't get to the edge because I have one radius to that, to that corner, now you hold it just slightly up and you can reach the corner and the bottom corner comes with the other thumb. So, you know, there's a little bit of just people making things up and, you know, it's, we need to pass around sensationalist things because it's funny apparently, but <laughs> yeah. I think it's still, you're still totally able to hold the thing. But what about in terms of, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just in love with the HTC one X. I think that display is awesome. And like, you just, you have, it's still portable, but you see so much. 
where, where does the, you know, the iPhone 5's display fall in the, the grand scheme of things? I mean, obviously it isn't as large. Yeah. Right? But it, it does help considerably. It's still not 720p. But, I mean, I think this brings them closer to where they need to be. I don't think it's still there. It's not, they're not still there in terms of resolution or overall size plus resolution. Yeah, the second one, size plus resolution. But I think you could make the case that they don't really need to be, you know, they don't really need to play too much in that space. I think people would like to see even bigger, you know, because we're four inches now, it's nice to see 16.9, you know, sort of get adopted. Yeah, but I think I think people wanted to see even bigger. Like I don't I don't think three point five to four. You know I don't know. It's difficult to say, but I, I think the people that wanted a bigger phone wanted a substantially bigger phone. Yes. So we'll. But I don't know. we'll see. What What is your take on it, though? Right, like it's you. You've obviously used a lot of phones. Yeah, is this I, the I sweet this spot for you for an older generation? Like four point three gener four point three inches is sort of the sweet spot for me. Okay. And this is still a little bit shy of that, but it's so much better than three and a half. I mean, really, when you use the One X or the Galaxy S3 or something even bigger like the Note and then come back to the iPhone, it, it does feel very small. It feels like you have a very small window into, you know, your web view, you know, the web canvas. Yeah. But, I mean, this is a step in the right direction. And again, it's really hard for them to, to increase the width without massively breaking things and creating a headache. Yeah. So but so I, I want to go back to for a while. I want to go back to what you just said. You 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 said that it's it's definitely better, right? That it's an appreciable improvement over the 3.5 inch screen. Um Absolutely. If, so it's it's definitely, you know, I there's this rule of thumb that, you know, at least when you're talking about performance that 10% of a gain, a 10% gain is is that kind of uh the beginning of where you notice a difference. Um, on sure. on the display side, you would think that you think that the move from three point five to four that's an appreciable, like tangible improvement. Yeah, that, and it's more because the aspect ratio change. You know, they added this. You can now have another line of icons. You can have another line in your folders. You know, when you're, I think most apps are just generally portrait oriented, so yeah. it sort of feels bigger than it really is. You know, and I, the display also got better in terms of quality, obviously. Like they talked about, they have almost full sRGB coverage. Which is obviously. huge, right? So that's that's on yeah. par with, if that actually ends up being the case, which Apple's thus far never really lied about anything like that publicly, um, that, that puts it on par with uh, what the new iPad display can do in terms of uh, color gamut. Exactly, yeah. So, that, I mean, that's a big thing. And Obviously, did you notice that? So looking thing. at the looking at the display, did you notice a? Uh, you know, I, I felt on the new iPad like you could really appreciate the the wider color gamut. Do you could you see that in the limited amount of time that you played with it? I think it did. It did seem more vibrant. You know, like there are some elements of the UI, like the SMS icon, uh, like the, the Safari icon, that are you know like immediately obvious when they change. But I mean, it's it's really hard to tell just how big of a visible change that is, you know, when we only had like a couple minutes. I think, you know, we uh, how long were we in there? Maybe a half hour tops. I mean, like yeah. Well, the by. video itself ended up being, I think, seven minutes long, and you played with it more than just that. Um, yeah, yeah. You you uploaded the video like immediately, which is why it it did so well. And then <laughs> I was like, I just want to keep playing with it. Yes. So, so okay, so you mentioned the other improvement, which is the move to an incel 
um, touch environment. Like, do we do we know the architecture? So, do they embed? Are they doing transmit over uh, the display grid? Yeah, it's in the gating, I believe. I don't think we've necessarily confirmed it, but I think the suppliers tell you all you need to know. Yeah, and yeah, it's got to be in the gating. So, so the do you know what the role is of that gating? Like conventionally in the display, what is the gating? What is the the display gating or grating or whatever you want to call it? What is that actually used for? Well, that's that's in the actual. You know, like if you're driving your uh, your your polarization crystal, which is how you you sort of turn on and off the light in an LCD, those traces are normally used for that. So they must, they, they've added, you know, I'm actually not super sure in an yeah. in-cell environment whether you run the traces alongside them, like next to it, but I, I'm pretty certain that they use the same ones. Yeah, no, I so think they, that's what it is, right? Like on there. You, you already have, um, you know, you already have lines that you can send something over. Uh, and then now you just use them to double up as as transmit. I'm guessing for yeah, uh, right. the field that you generate for the touch. So instead of having this like display grading down, and then you know having the display stack, then having the touch controller stack on top of that, where you have another set of lines that run across the screen that generate a field that are picked up by another set of lines that measure the uh, uh, impact of your finger on on the field that they create. You integrate that bottom half of the layer into the display itself. Uh, which reduces thickness. Um, are, are there any other benefits? There, there's obviously not an optical benefit to it too, right? Uh, yeah, fewer, fewer back reflections is always the, um, the gain that you get here. And um, <clears throat> so obviously there's some absorption. You know, like everybody, like I believe he called it an ITO layer. layer. It's just ITO, indium-10 oxide. So, you know, there's, there's no longer this indium-10 oxide layer with all these traces. And, you know, when you look at a phone and you see those, like, shiny squares or, like, shiny little lines, that's ITO. And th that means that they haven't done a really good job space-filling it with an index-matching material. So, I mean, there's all this overhead that you have to do in a normal, you know, device that isn't in-cell or the way that LCD and capacitive touches worked previously. Uh, you know, to make that work and it still be visible and transparent and have the minimal amount of, like, noise in the way, like visual noise... And now most of that is gone, although you still, you still do have to have the receive layer. And I believe, I believe that might be on the bottom of the color layer, or it might be somewhere else. These are like subtle details, um, but they do make a difference. And we'll find out, I'm sure, when somebody looks at it, and also who the controller is made by. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to keep in mind, each time you change index, like from glass to air, you get a 4% Fresnel reflection. I mean, obviously, when you're when you're bonded together, they got around some of that, so they bought they brought they brought the reflectivity coefficient down uh, because the index is closer. So it's pretty much still 1.5 to 1.5 versus 1.5 to one. So glass to air versus glass to glass. But getting rid of those interfaces is the bigger you know bigger gain, and that's what they've that's what they've done here is remove more. And I still don't really buy into this. Like it looks like the text is on the top. Thing. Yeah, you know, like everybody talks about that. I'm like, no, it's it's just clearly not. At least to me, I'm like, it's still an LCD. But you know, if you want to convey that that's the sense of improvement, that's fine. But it's not. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm I'm fooled yet. I'm not fooled. So no, I, I agree. I I've never really, you know, other than the the Retina MacBook Pro, where I felt like I could. That was the first time where I felt comfortable, kind of using that that painted on comparison yeah um 
and and even then it's it's clearly not but you know that was the the only time where i was kind of okay with using that that phrasing um so did you notice any you know you obviously use the phone quite a bit you notice any change in touch response with the move to an incel architecture no No, i mean it seems the same same to me i wrote that in the little piece too i said that there's no change which is you know, what you want to see. I think their touch has always been really responsive. You know, they do, good, do a good job tracking yeah. and also predicting where you're going to be. And there's not there's not too much lag between, you know, your touch event and where you originally started. So it, it feels more grippy. And they've always done a good job there. So it feels the same. And that's as much of a, that's as much of an achievement as it getting better as far as I'm concerned with this new, you know, move to incel. Yeah. And now... You so, so oh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, what stuck out for me the most is when I picked it up, the thing felt really light, like um, almost like cheap, you know, All, like cheap isn't the right word. It felt like it was empty. Like I was picking up this tin box and there was nothing inside of it. And it was really disconcerting at first because, you know, like the 4S and the 4 are quite heavy. Like they feel dense. Yeah. And there's so much glass and metal and you're, you know, like what you're contact, contacting with with skin. And when you move to the five, it's like, it felt like an empty tin box to me. Like I tapped in the video, there's one point where I'm like tapping on the back, you know, like to see if it's hollow because <laughs> it almost felt like there's nothing inside of it. And I saw other people writing the same thing as well. And so it's noticeably lighter. That's the big thing that stuck out for me is that it's, it's light almost like to a fault, which is crazy. Do you, do you feel that? It, it you know you use the word cheap is that how you would i mean does it feel like less of a product now or or was just Maybe. That th- i mean i guess yeah well whether something feels expensive is sort of a function of whether it's heavy yes right? i mean that's this that's sort of always existed i mean yeah. i don't know if it feels cheap but yeah it feels lighter and that has this perception or stigma that's attached to you know cheapness like the samsung phones are always really light and for a while, you know, like I was writing that it just makes them feel kind of cheap. Yeah. And but there's also a difference in, in construction material, right? They're still sure. using glass and aluminum here versus just some sort of a, a plastic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's metal all on the back and that just, it felt weird. And it, you should, you should note that the, the metal is actually dyed this time. So it's like anodized and the edge is uh, anodized as well. So it's not like stainless steel, at least the black model. Mm-hmm. So that's a significant departure away from, you know, how the four and the four S white and black models looked. So we'll see. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether it, it it stays on. I mean, as you like scrape at it. Yeah. So obviously, the move to Incel helped them get this thing thinner. Correct. How did yeah. the the thickness of it work? How did that feel to you? Uh, you know, it it felt noticeably thinner. I don't know if it was like it's a night and day thing, but it, it did feel thinner. I, I think that's all you can really say about it is that it is, it is thinner. I don't know if it's like uh, a, a huge change like night and day, but it's perceptible. Honestly, the, the bigger thing is when you move to a, an aspect ratio like this, that there's more surface area, that sort of the aspect ratio in terms of 2d area to thin thickness is a big change. Whereas the overall thickness didn't really change too much. Yeah, I gotcha. I don't know if I'm doing a good job conveying that, but that that aspect ratio changed a lot. 
didn't, but it didn't feel too big, right? Like the overall phone still felt very, very portable, very comfortable. Sure, I mean, yeah, well, I'm used to carrying around bigger phones. Like you've you've carried around (laughs) bigger phones, right? Like the One X is huge. The Galaxy S3 is huge in comparison, but they're not, they're not like so big that you can't carry them around. Even the LG View, um, the Note, those are big phones. And this, this still isn't quite as big. So yeah, okay. it's, not, it's not a concern. So, so I, we're going to get to the fun stuff here in a second. Um, they made a lot of improvements to microphones, to noise cancellation. You have a funny story about what happened there, right? Yeah, so actually the biggest thing that stuck out at me was the earpiece noise cancellation. So I went, I changed tables. I went from one table to another table, and it wasn't like the rep, you know, like they have Apple people standing over you. And this guy really didn't know, like I hadn't been doing the video with you, and he didn't really, I, like I just walked up. So I, <clears throat> I started playing around with it. And I decided I wanted to do a phone call because so I was like, well, this is a phone. You know, I know the earpiece situation and the microphone situation changed. I'd like to place a phone call. So I whip out my normal device and I get the number for the ASOS that I always call. And that's the number that's published on that picture. It's not my number. It's not Anon's number. So I added a note below it to sort of stop the emails like, hey, you left your number. I'm like, it's a freely published number. So anyways, I dial this number. And I start making the call and I hold the phone up to my head and like people are looking at me like everybody has stopped and they're staring at me. And (laughs) I'm like, well, this is interesting, right? We're living in the future and we're to the point now where me demoing a phone, actually making a phone call, not only draws suspicion, it draws ire. So (laughs) I, I hang up that after listening to it for a little bit because I like I know what that sounds like. And then I, I decide that I'm going to do something even more daring. I'm going to call you and then ask you what, what it sounds like. So then I, I dial your number. And then, of course, I'm like, well, I need to make sure I delete this afterwards so that you know, like, nobody's just like calling this or like, I don't want to get tracked down or anything. Yeah. So I call you and then I start talking into it. And I'm like, how do I sound? You know, can you hear a noise around me? And I don't know. How did I sound? What do you think? I, I thought you sounded fine. Like it's... it's um... The problem is we didn't have a control. You should have called me on like a, a Galaxy S3 or a 1X right afterwards. Um, but I, I, I cause so the, the new iPhone has three mics, right? That it uses to kind of make things better. Up from two. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, well, remember there was a whole audience thing too. Like audience said they're not in there, but it wasn't really, it was based on, they didn't, see, they didn't see any tests from Apple that validated it. So I'm not sure whether the jury is really, in or out about that one yeah actually funnily enough i guess the audience people are going to be coming by tucson next week and get to meet with them and ask that's awesome yeah so anyways so i placed that call to you and you said that i sounded okay yeah what really stuck out for me is that there is earpiece noise cancellation so now they have they added a microphone next to the earpiece and they use that earpiece microphone in a closed loop along with you know obviously what they know they're supposed to be driving on the earpiece and the two other microphone the primary and secondary um, to do cancellation of noise through the earpiece uh, around your ear and if you've ever put on like active noise canceling headsets you know that there's sort of like a, a pressure that you feel almost like white not like white noise but just like a, a heavy pressure that's because there's noise on one side of your head and not noise on the other side, and it, it, it accentuated it even more in that in that case. 
and that sensation was just very foreign to me, like very alien. And really it stuck out for me like for three days after I placed that call. And so out loud, I said to you, oh my gosh, they're doing the earpiece noise suppression and it's like actually working. And the Apple rep was like, you need to stop what you're doing right now. This is making me very like nervous. I can't remember what he said, but he was like, he, they have this way of saying things. And it's like the genius speak. You know the genius speak? It's like you can't you can't say no. You have to like, I suggest that you stop doing things. Yeah. And it's like sort of like talking to a baby or yes. I, I don't know what the good way of characterizing it is. But he said this funny line to me that was like, you're making me really anxious. And then I was like, oh, crap. And I immediately hung up. Yeah. Which is now, now to Apple's credit, we have been told to stop doing stuff by other companies in a far more rude manner. Oh, that's well, like what? I can't think of anything immediately. Do you not remember uh, Mobile World Congress when we were trying to test one of the Intel phones? Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, that's really ironic, right? Because, (laughs) I mean, we have the best relationship with Intel, I think. I mean, well, you have a long history there. Yeah. And they were like, uh, what are you doing? Like, never come back. Remember? Yeah, no, I think that's it what was, it was. It was not good. It was not good. So so I, I feel like the Apple folks did, you know, to their credit, they were very mature and respectful about the, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing this right now. Yeah, um, that's what it was. That's what it was. So then I stopped. And, and you know, also the other thing is uh, phone calls were totally okay on, I want to say on the Verizon iPhone 4, right? When we, when that launched, didn't I call you from a that's Verizon right. iPhone well, 4? Well, that's because it was, a, you know, like a big deal. Yeah, and um, um, they wanted to emphasize that hey, everything works, and I think the the other point was that death grip was fixed. Yes, right, and um, so yeah, that's I you know I had no reason to warn you that hey maybe you shouldn't do this. Um, <laughs> well, and but, you know uh, they talked about they talked up the uh, earpiece noise cancellation features as well, and I think that is a big difference that normal people will perceive immediately is that there's this weird press pressure sensation against my head on the earpiece. Yeah. And that's the active noise cancellation. Like that was but a very so, noisy room. So you're, you're describing it as a weird sensation. Is it a good thing? Do you like it? Yes. I like the. Well, obviously I want it more. Yeah. Right? Like I want, I want, I crave it because it was cool <laughs> and it was unique and different. Like I haven't, I haven't tried another handset that has the earpiece noise cancellation turned on. And so it was, it was neat. Like everything else, like I've seen before, right? Like LTE. Okay. I've, I've seen that for years now. Um, dual core. We've seen that for a while. High res screen. That's over four inches. We've seen that for a while. Eight megapixel camera. You know, we've seen that for a while, at least. So, you know, like I'm kind of jaded. Yeah. But this, this was like, wow, this is new. It's different. You know, it feels really weird. So but, that's why but it stuck I think, out. I think that's an important improvement, right? Cause a lot of folks, I know me, I'm, I'm just, I'm always on the phone, right? There's some days when it's just, I'm going from meeting to meeting on the phone. Uh, so it's good to see innovation there as well, right? It's good to see progress there, not just in, you know, the the usual tangibles. Absolutely. So I thought, you know, hey, I'm going to test this out and talk <laughs> about it because I just know nobody else is going to make a phone call. Yeah. They're just going to, you know, browse a couple pages in Safari, you know, thumb left and right on the home screen. And then, you know, we got our 30 pictures, like, let's just call it a day. So, you know, obviously we strive to do a lot, a lot more possibly, you know, when it's, when it's something we can. Yeah. And I thought that was unique. No, that, that's really cool. I'm, I'm really jealous. I I wish like I'd, I'd experienced that. Um, 
And, and I'm wondering, I'm, I'm hoping that they've gotten kind of earpiece quality control issues under control. Oh, right? you're Cause referring like, to the, the crackling and stuff? Yeah, well, because you mentioned that that was a known issue on like the iPhone 4, and then I had a problem with my initial 4S um, where there was just like tons of noticeable crackling um, when that I get talked fixed on it. with a hardware swap? Uh, see, I can't tell. You know, I've been using it for you know, pretty much a year now. I can't tell if I've just grown used to it or if it actually got fixed. Um, so I'm curious to see if, you know, obviously now they're focusing on making the, you know, the experience with the earpiece better I'm, I'm curious to see if that that extends beyond just noise cancellation there i feel like um, that was a shielding issue like it it always kind of crackled for me when i i had this perception that it was using the top antenna yeah you know and i don't know we never really investigated that as fully as maybe we should have or it's it's really hard to yes but i felt like that was some of them lacked some shielding or the top top antenna chain would cause interference sometimes but We'll see. I mean, hopefully it's better. So the other big feature is obviously LTE support. Is there is there much to add there in terms of what folks already know? Obviously, it's it's uh, MDM 9615, so 28-nanometer Qualcomm LTE single-chip baseband. Yeah, and they they threw in the RTR 8600, which wasn't the uh, WTR 1605, or is it WTL 1605L? But yeah, either way, this the... Uh, it's WTR. The pre, it's the 65 nanometer five port transceiver, and so that's, that's kind of why you see that they have two different hardware models with different bands. And I mean, so, we so talked about that. Take a step back here. Um, people kind of get what the baseband does, right? It has all the compute that you know actually does all the modem work. What does the transceiver do? Transceiver. So that's a good question. I've actually asked this question before. Because yeah. it, it seems to vary a lot, but the transceiver sits in between the power amplifiers and obviously the, the part in the chain where you get just IQ data out. So magic happens. You have a bunch of different RF paths out you know, and transmit uh, and receive, and then there's a, a diplexer, and that's outside the, the transceiver, and then what's before the transceiver is the baseband. So the baseband gets IQ data, Transceiver turns magic RF stuff into just the baseband components. Um, so there's all this RF stuff that happens inside there. I, I suspect that's also where you know these interference cancellation techniques live, and you know like receive diversity lives. Yeah. And these are like features that can't be can't be implemented in the you know the logic process. Um, so yeah, they're still the still analog process. Yeah, these are still analog things. So Except, I guess that's I don't know, a good did, way to, to separate it. Yeah. Did did you did you look at the uh, Intel Moore's Law radio announcement? Yeah, and that that's very interesting. So they put they did all their transceiver in digital. Yes. Because so right, their their whole curious. big thing is you know you mentioned it right now. This is a sixty-five nanometer part. We're talking about uh, what you know two process nodes beyond that is where we're at with the digital baseband. Um, and you know Intel was basically like, look, if we're gonna be you know, Intel really likes integration, right? Because they have to keep their fabs full. And at IDF, they're like, look, one big problem is as we scale stuff down smaller and smaller, the analog components of, you know, of, you know, our RF stack, of our wireless stack, they don't scale, right? Because they're yeah, still analog components. True. And, you know, eventually you get to a point where, well, what happens when you're building uh, 10 or 7 nanometer Wi-Fi or baseband 
and you still have this gigantic analog block that you have to integrate. So, you know, the the third day of IDF, they announced that they have now finally taken uh, the transceiver component from an 802.11g Wi-Fi implementation and and implemented that entire thing in digital logic. Um, there's still some analog components on the outside, but they they implemented it on a 32 nanometer chip, and then they later implemented that 32 nanometer transceiver in an atom a dual core atom SOC. Um, so that yeah, was really they exciting. Talked about, they talked about what's hard there a, a bunch of times, I think now, like the frequency domains being very close, and they have them having to do some like collaborative time slicing when they light up certain transceiver paths versus when they're lighting up paths on the CPU. Yes. So, but of course, the new the new Qualcomm transceiver is also twenty eight nanometers, but that one isn't available yet in volume apparently, and that's why we see RTR eighty six hundred getting slotted in. You know, and there are sixteen oh five devices out now, like the uh, well, I guess not out now, but you know, we've we've seen them before, like the Lumia nine twenty. Yeah. And so I, I don't know that the whole like LTE band situation on. The iPhone 5 is very interesting. You know, it's a very challenging engineering problem. I still think there probably will be another model coming with, you know, TDS CDMA and maybe support for China and these other European bands. Obviously, 2.6 gigahertz needs to be supported eventually. And I think that maybe that will come with W2R 1605, like an iPhone refresh with that. Yeah. I don't know. I hate to speculate, but I like speculating. And that seems like... <laughs> That seems like the easiest path forwards. You know, those line yeah. up quite nicely. And then, of course, well, there's is... the, the Volte situation. I don't know if we want to talk about that whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. So so real quick as a recap, um, iPhone 5 maintains the antenna architecture of the 4S. Yeah, and the 4 CDMA. Yes. Um, now, when Phil Schiller introduced it, he said it improved upon it. Is, is that accurate, or is it is it roughly the same... I believe it's totally the same. I don't. Did he really say improved upon it? I don't know what what he's referring to there. Yeah, I I, I could be misquoting. Um, there was oh. obviously a lot happening at once, but I, I feel like he he at least maybe implied that it was a, a newer generation of it, which is 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 obviously you know likely true. Um, well, but mean, so same Im- thing. It's improved in the sense that it has LTE now, but it's yes. still the same configuration. Like they have they have a double pull, double throw switch, and then they can change what. They can do like a, a switching diversity and transmit, and they can do a switching switching or combi- combine diversity and receive. So, you know, those those things are exactly how they were on the, the 4S. You know, I could be wrong. I don't know. Nobody's done like a lot of testing otherwise. Yeah. But we'll see. Um, but at a high level, the, the hope is uh, since receive diversity is still there, uh, death grip issues all that stuff that that doesn't come back up it it should it should theoretically work at least as good as the 4s does um oh absolutely yeah and then obviously you add lte which brought a whole bunch of other debate right (laughs) so um you know we we were quoted in this new york times article uh explaining how so there there were a bunch of uh, I, I guess, how do you want to do this? Do you want me to explain the high level and then you go in, or do you want to take it all? Um, I mean, you can explain it. You did a very good job in the New York Times interview. I have a uh, tendency to get really technical and then like just on a tangent. So <laughs> why don't, why don't no, we do that? Well, it's not that you go on a tangent. I think I, it's, it's... 
like I, I confused I always... him. No, I definitely confused him. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, it's just you operate on a totally different plane. Like I've, been, I've seen this as well with, um, with folks that are just ridiculously smart, right? Like you, you operate on a totally different plane than the rest of us, right? <laughs> like, okay. I, <laughs> I mean, it's just you. You have so much knowledge about so many. That's usually how I describe you, right? When I like explain to people that you're smart, I have to explain to them that. You just know a lot about everything, right? Like when I was stuck in New York um, or stuck trying to fly to New York, it's, it's you know, I'm checking like uh, Google or Flight Tracker and then you go directly to the FAA and I just have like all of the, the source documents on everything telling me what <laughs> yeah, the weather like, conditions. Yeah, what they're looking at. Like just I know. this. <laughs> it's like I said, operating on a totally different plane. So, okay. So here's the situation. Um, you have... One transmit chain on the iPhone 4S on the iPhone 5. Um, and since voice over LTE is not currently supported, right? You, you can't transact voice over LTE. It's just for data. Uh, you, you have a fallback mode on, for example, the, the uh, GSM, the AT&T iPhone 5, where once you start transacting voice, you actually fall back from LTE to... Uh, HSPA plus or, or you know whatever tra- traditional 3G, um, and and on the AT&T devices that's fine because you can transact voice and data at the same t- same time there. You have one uh, transmit chain, so everything works the same way it did uh, on on the iPhone 4S. Uh, it just happens to be if you're you know making a voice call while you're transacting data, you're not going to get the same LTE speeds that you would when when the call ends. Um, and I'm really curious to see how that whole handoff works, right? Because in my experience. Um, you know, I didn't do too much work at the 28 nanometer side, but when I've been testing uh, AT&T LTE, I, like, I've always had weird issues with uh, not getting back on LTE so quickly after making a call or just a bunch of really silly stuff happening there. I, I, I don't know if your experience mirrors mine at all. Yeah, that's, so that's an unsolved problem. And actually, when I was at Qualcomm talking with their modem people, I had a long discussion about that. And really, it, it just comes down to, you know... <clears throat> comes down to the software that's running on the base stations, you know, so your, your ISVs, um, and that whole collaboration, and it will get better. Like, for me, the number of times that I've been in LTE markets and done a call and then waited, it's, it generally happens pretty fast, at least for me. Like, initially, it was a big thing. I think on Verizon, it was, it was really a, a big problem initially. Both the, like, I remember handovers taking seconds between LTE base stations while driving around, like back when I did our initial LTE testing, and that was on MDM 9600 with the dongle and then the Thunderbolt. And yeah, the handovers were like in seconds. And that's that's improved now, and handovers are faster. And then the hand up to the hard hand up from WCDMA 3G to LTE has gotten a lot faster. And... I mean, honestly, we'll see how well it does in here. I think that obviously Apple does a really, really good job generally with engineering that side of things. So their stack is, again, this is another part of the discussion is that the stack is really simplified because they don't have to worry about um, SVLTE for the eVDO devices. So they don't have to worry about simultaneous voice and data because it doesn't exist. Yeah. So that brings us to the, the the controversial part of the story, right? Which is on the Verizon phone, again, one transmit chain. So you're transacting data over LTE. You get a phone call. You 
stop transacting data over LT because you you obviously have to fall back to something. Uh, the issue is you fall back to EBDO um, or or you fall back to uh, 1x RTT, right? Where where That's all right. voices handle. And there's no support for simultaneous uh, voice and data there, right? Because there's only one transmit chain, so you're all you get is is voice at that point. You you stop transacting all data. Um, and and that's what caused a little bit of an uproar because you had, I guess, a previous generation of devices. Um, you know, so this is Apple's first LTE implementation, right? And and they obviously they wanted to keep things as as kind of consistent and as uniform across all devices. So you have one transmit chain uh, across, you know, both their their AT and T devices, Verizon, Sprint, so on and so forth. So on the Verizon and Sprint devices, when you fall back, you fall back into a state where you can't trans, uh, uh, transact both voice and data at the same time. By comparison, you have all of the folks who did, uh, you know, back to when LT was a discrete chip, right, in addition to your EVDO baseband. Folks that designed phones around that have to, had to do two transmit chains, um, and, and they kind of enabled simultaneous data and voice on LT by you know, kind of continue to transact data on LTE and simply using the the other transmit chain to, to deal with voice on the 1X and, and EVDO baseband. Exactly, um, yeah. And it sounds like those guys, you know, the so so Samsung supports it, is that correct? Well, and see, it's, it's even more subtle than that because the new single baseband devices like the 1X, or I guess the Evo 4G LTE, and the Galaxy S3 on Verizon, or even the Evo 4G LTE, those all have the same MDM9615 IP block inside 8960, but they have the ability to do, um, you know, this this uh, single radio, you know, simultaneous voice and data configuration uh, with LTE and EVDO at, and 1X at the same time. But they still have two transmit paths that are discrete. So it's just, you know, and that's the de facto way of doing it on all these other phones. So of course, when the iPhone comes around and they chose to implement things differently, you know that simultaneous capability has gone away, and hence the the status quo is sort of broken of this being the the way to do things on every LTE phone for Verizon or Sprint, and hence the uproar, and yeah, there we are. So, <laughs> but what's your take on that? Right? Like, did um, so obviously from from Apple's perspective, the one solution is you implement another transmit path for the Verizon device. Um, right. And obviously you have to cram that antenna in somewhere. Um, yes. Perhaps I mean, change. Like, I don't know what, yeah, I don't know where they would have put it, but I mean, it obviously could have been engineered in there. At the same time, there's no easy way to do it without breaking this consistency between the two. And there's, yeah. there's already two, two different models. There's A1428 and there's A1429. And A1428 is for you know, AT&T slash Rogers and a couple other places. And the, the A1429 device is more of the global, you know, like the handset that's going to ship a lot more of. And that one also works on Verizon. So when I look at it, I see like an engineering decision that was done to both consolidate the lineup, you know, make as few, few devices as possible, which has always been Apple's MO. And then... Um, you know, just, you know, like everybody sort of needs to deal with it. And then the same thing, even when I mean everybody needs to deal with it, I mean because there, if you were on a Verizon iPhone 4 or 4S, you already didn't have simultaneous voice and data. So from their perspective, because 
you know, obviously they're only really concerned with what the upgrade path is there. This is the same experience, you know, if not better, because now you have LTE in addition to EVDO, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. And and so kind of the, the long-term solution is we eventually get voice over LTE, um, right. which I, from what I understand talking to you, you're looking at another 12 to 24 months before we start seeing uh, voice over LTE devices hit. Yeah, or is that's that for... still a ways out. I mean, the carriers need to fully test and implement all of that, and then that gets deployed, and then we see handsets start arriving. So yeah, it, I mean, we're looking at like late 2013. It, it really depends. Depends on how fast all of that goes. But I mean, the carriers like to move glacially slow. Internationally, there's some VOLT, you know, like Volti. Yeah. Um, actually, I was kind of playing around. I believe the LGU Plus network, which is what I'm on here, that, that one is uh, Volti-enabled. So, like, I placed a call on that, and it worked fine. Um, so, eventually, that will come to the U.S. And I think a lot of people, you know, like, a lot of people have been emailing asking, well, will the iPhone then support Volti? And I don't see why it, it couldn't be possible with an update. It would require, you know, a lot of re-engineering, you know, obviously of the baseband software, of the, the handset to enable it, and then another trip through the FCC. But, I mean, we are talking about a device that's going to have a big attach rate, a lot of importance, you know, for the carriers in terms of their, their you know, like their use expectations and what perceptions get set. So I wouldn't say it's impossible. I'd say it's unlikely. I'd say that you shouldn't buy something based on, like, a maybe. It will support this eventually. Yeah. Future. That's just terrible advice for me to give. <laughs> so, I mean, it's possible, but it's... It's not, it's not confirmed at all. You know, like I emailed AT&T, I emailed Verizon asking for what their official word was. And both of them said they have no plans to announce. They have no official information. I don't believe we got a statement back from Apple. No, um, nothing from Apple yet on it. But I, I mean, Apple's been kind of busy <laughs> putting yeah, out fires this exactly. past week. So um, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, Verizon completed its first successful voiceover LTE call. Um, a while ago and we'll see what happens that's all that okay. i can really say <laughs> so so we went through network and and then that brings us to the kind of one surprise um big in all surprise. of this yeah the big surprise uh which is the soc so for a long time there uh you know l let's take a step back let's look at um retina ipad uh a5x you know, you, you, Apple did a super wide memory controller, 128 bits wide. Uh, so actually on par in terms of number of pins dedicated to memory IO as what you have in your core i7 notebook. Um, huge memory controller, huge GPU, PowerVR SGX 543 MP4. So, so twice the GPU compute power of what's in the iPhone 4S, uh, significantly faster than, you know, any other mobile SOC that's shipping today. So Apple builds this thing, and they put it on Samsung's 45 nanometer um, low-power process, uh, and it makes the chip huge, right? It's something like 163 square millimeters, so yeah. it's like it's bigger than a dual-core Ivy Bridge. Um, it, and it's, it's not a pop either. Yeah, it's it's not a... I mean, I, I don't know that you could, you know, easily no do a, a, <laughs> yeah. a pop stack with, with that many... Uh, with that much memory I.O. So Apple releases this chip, and... Uh, it's it's beefy, it's fast, but obviously this is not going into a phone. Uh, shortly thereafter, um, we we see this this other thirty two nanometer A five derivative, 
right? So A5R2 is what we've been calling it publicly, and uh, it's it's just a bona fide die shrink. We found it in the iPad 2.4, which Brian needs to take all the credit for this because as soon as Apple announced, uh, you know, the kind of cheaper iPad, Brian was on this like March. You know, we have to get one of these. We have to get one of these. I bet you there's different silicon in it, and yeah, and behold, everybody was like, no, that doesn't exist. You know, yeah. like, we don't know. So lo and behold, you know, we eventually get an iPad 2.4, 2 comma uh, 4 is they're just their internal nomenclature for it. And yeah, it's got 32 nanometer A5 silicon in it. Now, not all 399 iPad 2s have this A5 R2 in it. Some have just a vanilla 45 nanometer A5. They both perform the same, same clock, same feature set, everything. But if you're lucky, you would get this, this iPad 2.4 with 32 nanometer silicon in it. And at the time, we looked at it as, well, this is unique, right? A die shrink is, is very rare in the industry these days. Normally, you know, now you go to a new process, you add some more transistors, you improve performance. So at the time, it looked like this is what Apple was doing, was just uh, uh, testing Samsung for volume, right? That, that right. you know, this was their pipe cleaner chip. They send this through to make sure that, you know, they got all the kinks worked out because they're going to be deploying something that's much higher volume uh, later on. And uh, then it all makes sense, right? You go 45 nanometer on, on A5 because you can get good pricing on the wafers because it'll do the volume you need. Um, but you have to produce something. You need a test chip uh, at 32 nanometer at Samsung to make sure that you're going to be able to hit good yields and good volume when the time comes. Now, you can always, you know, you do test silicon, right? Like you, you put a bunch of gates and memory and, and all this other stuff. You, you build these chips that serve functions, but there's a huge difference between building a test chip with a bunch of gates on it and building a fully functional SOC. So there's, there's always this, this balance of, you know, you learn a lot by building a huge chip um, that's very complicated on a, on a new process. But at the same time, you know there are going to be bugs, you know there are going to be yield issues. So if you make it too big of a chip, then you're not going to really, you're not going to be able to have many useful die in the market. Uh, you make it too small, you won't expose any of the weird issues that you're going to encounter with the, the production on the new process, and you'll end up with very little learnings. And unfortunately, when you go to market with something that you know is more complex, you'll, you'll have a lot of yield issues. So you gotta—it's like this really careful balance you have to pick in in what you choose to be your your pipe cleaner or your your chip to to start on a new process. Um, so Apple picked A5, a, a chip that they'd been very very. Uh, I guess comfortable with, experienced with, and uh, they did a straight die shrink of it, put it on 32, then they've been shipping that for a while. So Brian, you and I both thought that, hey, look, what's going to happen is we're, we're just going to see A5R2 at higher clocks in the iPhone 5. And then next year yeah. with the iPad 4, we'll get new architecture, maybe go to Cortex-A15, and, and stuff will get more interesting by then. Because that's been the normal cadence. And then we also saw, you know, the Apple TV uses that same SOC, but with a core disabled. So it was like, well, even the ones that didn't perform as well, they're still using. But I yes. mean, now it's so obvious, right? Like it, it wound up in the iPad Touch. I mean, iPod Touch. Yeah. No, it, it's so that was the thing that we didn't think of, right? So at the time, it made total sense, right? The, the chips that are functional, you throw in iPad 2s. Um, if you can't make enough, you still have a supply of 45 nanometer A5s that you can throw in iPad 2s. Um, the chips that maybe just one CPU core doesn't work, disable it, throw it in an Apple TV. No one's going to complain there if, if volume isn't what you need it to be. Um, and, and we weren't even thinking about the iPod Touch, right? Now no. it makes total sense <laughs> that this chip just goes into the new iPod Touch and something new entirely comes for, for the new iPhone. 
And, you know, so uh, a few days before the event, we start getting information that's coming in saying that, look, this is not just vanilla A9s, um, but something much bigger and better altogether. And I start thinking about it, and, you know, you and I start talking about it, and it it makes a lot of sense, right? So if you're not going to do A9s, you know, Apple has, even though they have a, a good set of CPU architects internally now, They've always just licensed an ARM core. So it was it was ARM 11, then it was Cortex-A8, then it was Cortex-A9. And the logical conclusion is, well, if they're using something that's bigger and better than an A9, then it has to be Cortex-A15, which for so long we said was just unbelievable, right? Because Samsung and, and TI in particular, these are launch partners for, for ARM, and they're not exactly. shipping them yet. So for Apple to kind of come out with an A... don't even have final clocks yet. Like, we're... <laughs> You know, they're not even still at what they said their final clocks would be. Yeah, so so for Apple to just come out and and one up them just seemed too good to be true, right? It's it seemed unusual, and so you know I, I made this claim initially that look the the A6 wasn't just higher clocked A9s, uh, wasn't higher clocked Cortex A9s, um, and the justification there is pretty simple, right? So uh, and I referenced this when we did the the updated A6 analysis post, but basically you have um, you know, when you design a microprocessor architecture, you have kind of a target frequency, and you can go above that frequency and below that frequency. Uh, you can scale up and down by kind of playing with the voltage. So you increase voltage, you can go higher frequency. Decrease voltage, you can uh, go lower frequency. In a power constrained environment where where power matters, you want to be as close to V min, so at minimum operating voltage as possible. The reason there is you have this kind of exponential relationship between power and voltage, uh, whereas it's a linear relationship between power and frequency. Um, you start having to dial up voltage to get that frequency, and, and power goes up much more than you'd like it to. Intel kind of encountered this back in the Pentium 4 days, right, where you had, uh, you know, they kept scaling frequency, right? That was their only vector for improving performance. And eventually, you know, it allowed AMD to kind of uh, surpass them in terms of performance and power efficiency. So it sort of makes sense that Apple wouldn't want to just increase or double frequency of the Cortex-A9 um, to, to get the added performance they wanted, right? So Apple announced a 2x increase in performance. You can obviously get there. The old A9s in the uh, A5 SoC only ran at 800 megahertz. You know, run them at 1.6 and, and you'll be fine. The issue is, and, and the reason that doesn't work, is Apple also claimed improvement in battery life. So... The move to 32 nanometer will give you better power consumption characteristics, but it won't give you 2x performance and better power, uh, power characteristics. And, and that's kind of what Apple promised, right? So that was off the table. Then the more you and I talked about it, right? A9s, A15s didn't make sense because that's a deeper pipe. That's a much more power-hungry part than the Cortex-A9 was. Um, and it's and many people, for servers, as we like pointing out. Yeah, like it was it was the initial target for the Cortex-A15 wasn't a phone, um, which is part of why, you know, obviously it's going to make it into phones, but uh, this is a, a very power-hungry architecture. So if it's not an A15 and it's not an A9, what could it be? And I, I did a lot of, like, legwork and talking to folks and, and trying to get an understanding of what this is. Um, and then eventually it, it came through that, hey, this is a custom Apple design, right? So it's implementing the ARM v7 instruction set, 
But it's not an A9 and it's not an A15. It's not IP that's licensed from ARM. The only thing that's licensed from ARM, uh, I'm assuming here, is the instruction set. That's right. And yeah. everything else or components of everything else are, are designed by Apple's own internal CPU team, which leaves a whole other set of questions on the table, right? We don't know anything about the way the chip looks, about the architecture. Um, and and I, I'm not counting on Apple sending us a nice block diagram of this thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's never going to happen. Well, I mean, but, you pointed out too, the other reason, the other thing was that Apple has never ever confirmed even that, you know, like the A5 was an A9 or the A4 was an A8 or, you know, just back in history, that's never happened. So for this to change number in a major way meant that it needed to be a different CPU architecture and that the logical extension was A15s, which backed up what your sources told you. You know, yeah, exactly. Of course, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And obviously, um, obviously, it can't just be another A9 with those claims. Yeah. So then today, um, we, we saw the the first, and I, I'm sure you've been doing the same. I've been like religiously checking Geekbench to see, yeah. you well, know, when refreshing five comma one and ended up being a five comma two. Yeah. Which is interesting to me because that says it's probably the A1429 model as opposed to A1428 that somebody, you know, clicked upload on, like I guess as somebody who was pre-sampled. So we're not pre-sampled, so it's not like we leaked it to ourselves. But <laughs> Yeah, so, so someone who has uh, likely a Verizon iPhone 5, um, either a reviewer or, or, you know, someone in the supply chain, because um, these things I'm assuming are, are now starting to float around carriers as well. True, um, true. So someone there ran Geekbench 2, and click, they tapped upload, um, which, assuming they didn't fake this thing, gave us a wealth of information, right? So it gave us clock speeds, which is a gigahertz, um, so like a 25% increase from where the, uh, the previous silicon was running. Um, and that kind of confirms the whole, this isn't just higher clock day nines, because from a 25% CPU per, uh, increase in CPU frequency, you can't get a 2x increase in performance. Um, and we got a lot of information from it. Right, so that tells us we got confirmation of memory too, which we talked about the day before. Yes, yes. So you dug up the Samsung part numbers, um, which ended up being what uh, a gig of RAM. That's right. Yeah, two two devices, you know, dual channel, ten sixty six megahertz, one point two volt LPDDR two, and you did the math out, and that's eight point five gigs per second. Yes. So. And there's nothing too earth shattering there, right? Like, so it's it's more memory bandwidth than the iPhone 4s. Obviously, substantially less than the 12.8 gigs a second you get on an iPad 3. But um, memory is kind of an interesting thing in all of this because it's kind of widely known amongst the industry that the Cortex A9 never had like a really good, like the core itself was good. All the compute in the A9 was actually you know remarkably competitive. Everything beyond that, right? The the uh, once you start getting out away from registers and start accessing caches and, and memory, um, that it just actually wasn't all that great of an architecture. And if you look at the Geekbench results that came out, you see huge improvements, right? You see somewhere from like 1.7 to, what is it, like 5 plus X? Yeah, I think uh, there was one that was like 6 or 7. There was yeah, one it's, memory it's, test that was like 7X, yeah. Huge increases in in memory performance, over the iPhone 4S. Um, and, and it's really that that enables a lot of the performance gains. 
right? Then you start looking at the gains in, in compute that, that we're seeing here. And across the board in all of the integer tests, you're looking at 2.2x um, is what we saw on average. You go to floating point and then you're looking at 1.7 to, you know, almost, almost 5x increases there. I think a lot are around 4x. Um, and then all of that, you know, some people were surprised and, and they were saying that, look, well, this means the iPhone 5 is actually faster than the 2x claims that, that Apple promised um, at the event compared to the iPhone 4S. You have to remember that Geekbench is, like, these are low-level CPU tests. A lot of this stuff fits well in cache. Like, it's not representative of overall application performance. But that being said, you know, we're still, you have the numbers that Apple shared, we're still 1.7, 1.9, 2x performance in application-level tests. Um, so whatever this architecture is, you know, from a <laughs> yeah, from a 200 megahertz increase in performance, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, well, I remember the there, speculation then was that if it's not using an Apple, I mean, if it's not using an A9, it's not using an A15, then what are the clocks? And then that will tell us how good this architecture is in terms of IPC over an A9. Yeah, so right? that like obviously that the other guess is that it had to be two 1.6 gigahertz A9s, which isn't entirely impossible. Like Samsung puts their A9s there, so. That was a totally valid also guess. Yes. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Like this puts Apple in a completely different position now, right? Because obviously the, the positive side is they can tune the architecture um, for exactly the device that they're trying to release. They know the OS release schedule. They know the device release schedule. And, and now they can tune architectures to, to kind of hit perfectly. Um, and you, you saw this firsthand, right? So you've been using uh, the iOS 6 beta, and yeah. you've been using flyover mode on, on maps, um, and the new iOS 6 maps, and you were just like, you were shocked at, at how much faster they are on the iPhone 5 now. Yeah, it was substantially improved. I mean, well, and then I pulled it, didn't I pull it out in front of you, the 4S? Yes. I do that, and you were like, oh, this is awful. Like, now it looks awful. I mean, previously it didn't look that awful, but I mean, when you when you're doing both of them side by side, yeah, it's it's just night and day. Like honestly, the three flyover maps on the five is like sixty FPS solid, even when it's loading buildings, even when you're doing you know the the level of detail changes, which you know is going to incur a lot of texture swapping and geometry swapping. It was yes. like fluid, whereas that just drops substantially on the four S. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, that's, that's an application that obviously really stressed the memory subsystem. Um, and, and that's something that clearly, you know, if these Geekbench results are accurate, it looks like Apple, you know, went in and addressed. So that, that's the positive side of all of this. The negative side is, and, you know, I, I, I keep mentioning this whenever we talk, is that all processors have errata, right? All processors have bugs. And some of them matter and some of them don't. And now we really, like, the discussion now shifts from, hey, Apple knows when to integrate good IP to now we get to see how good Apple's QA and validation teams are, right? Because validating complex silicon isn't easy. You know, you look at, um, I guess, the most recent example of that in the x86 space was the first Phenom uh, from AMD, where they had that TLB bug that didn't impact a lot of people, but it could cause issues for certain workloads. And they had to ship a bunch of systems with that uh, that feature disabled, which impacted performance considerably, right? And and obviously the famous one is Intel's FDiv bug with the original Pentium. Um, and I have like I always have this kind of internal rule of thumb is in that your your validation 
you look at validation and you look at QA completely differently once you've had one of those issues. Yeah, so we were Ap- hoping that the issue that would fix Apple QA was the antenna gate slash death grip thing. Yes. But you were saying that's probably not big enough. Well, it's it's just totally well, even different, Craig right? Had an errata too, right? Like, uh, well, we've we've sort of talked about this. Like, if you know me in person, I've talked about this. But the crate errata twenty six one point one five volt min thing, which it actually gets spit out during kernel boot, like they check for it and set the voltage minimum equivalently. But I mean, even that, I mean, that's fixed now if you buy an eighty nine sixty. But yeah, nobody's immune. So you're you're. I mean, obviously you're spot on. So it'll be an interesting little Easter egg hunt to see whether there are any. Yeah. And like I said, all processors have them. The question is, we know nothing about this kind of internal team here, right? Obviously Apple's been hiring a lot of really cool folks um, to work on these chips. Um, But I, you know, and and it's interesting when they did that, that whole kind of in response to the antenna gate thing, they toured their, you know, antenna testing facilities and stuff like that, which all seemed like really, really top notch. Um, sure. So, I mean, they did the song and they did the you know song and dance or the pony show or whatever. I mean, we weren't there, um, but ultimately, yeah, that came down to like industrial design versus is it going to work in the realm of physics? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So hopefully, when you're engineering a C a CPU, this is entirely engineering dr- driven. So at least that sort of stuff won't happen where. It's like the CPU doesn't look pretty, so we need to just make it not work nearly as good. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. It, it, uh, the, the potential upside here is huge. Um, and, and obviously, we'll, we'll find out more here in uh, about a week when we get our hands on devices. Um, which, I, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of... It is still really cool that, that we are talking about very short leads between announcement and availability, right? Like, it's it's... You know, we kind of take that for granted on the PC side. You know, we've, we, it used to be that you would announce a GPU and then like a month and a half later, the cards would be available. But now, you know, everyone's kind of moved to this, look, NDA lifts and, and you have stuff available right away. Um, sure, so yeah. it, it, it is cool that, that Apple is, is kind of headed in that direction and, and has been maintaining that policy for a little while now. Um, well, they've built out just, I mean, this is part of the, the magic of their ecosystem is that they know exactly when to deliver, when to strike, when the iron is hot. All those aphorisms really are true. You mean when you're at the top of your hype cycle, I mean, you've just done a PR thing. The whole point is to get people excited, yeah. right? Uh, so obviously make it available and make it you know, possible to make that expenditure right then. And so many companies still don't do that, like in the phone space or you know, elsewhere, and at the same time, I wonder if they're going to keep doing that because obviously the the other side effect is they've been building up you know stock of these things, and that's where the leaks come from is just huge volume, building up a stock of these things, getting everything right, um, you know. So I mean, who knows? Maybe that goes away, right? So it goes away in that all of a sudden you have like a month lead time between when things get announced and then availability, you know, as opposed to like a week. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope not. I, I like this. <laughs> yeah, well, I like this too, but I'm just saying that's another, that's really where you see Apple leaks happen is because this thing has been in manufacture for months now, like in, in mass. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, Cause you have to test it, right? So you exactly. have to make it to test it. And then 
I, I'm, I'm really curious to see, because once you start going to like this level of custom silicon here, that impacts everything, right? Like it's, it's, there's not a second supplier of this stuff now, right? Like there's no, that design is your design. And, and I don't know how many revs it's gone through, right? Like, so, so uh, how manufacturable it is, like there are a whole bunch of new variables here. Um, it, it's a, just a totally different game at this point. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see what, where, where things go from now. Um, yeah, whether it's just the iPad 4, I guess, model gets just a higher clock or whether it's something else entirely or whether they separate what silicon goes into iPhone versus iPad. Yeah. I mean, well, so the one thing we didn't talk about is GPU. Um, yeah. So so we confirmed, you know, you mentioned we confirmed on the memory side two 32-bit LPDDR2 channels, um, 1066 data rate uh, across them. Um, and the, the common thinking at this point, because they're, they're promising a 2x increase in GPU speed as well, up to 2x. So the options there are we had a 543 MP2 last time in the A5, um, 543 MP4 in uh, the A5X. The latter doesn't seem to make sense, right? Because the issue is when you're designing an SoC, your die area is defined by how much I.O. you have around the chip, right? So if you have, yeah, that's kind of what defined the, the die size of the A5X. They needed 128-bit memory interface, which meant they had a lot of die space to work on, work with, and, and thus you integrated uh, four 543 um, uh, GPU cores in there. Here, with only a 128-bit wide or 64-bit um, wide interface, you don't have as much room, and and we're kind of thinking that it's this uh, intermediate point, right, where you have three, you have a 543 MP3 in there running at kind of higher clocks. Yeah, and that that is sort of weird to think about because I guess I mean even we weren't initially thinking that it would go in anything but powers of two. Yes, right? like three is just an odd number, and I still people are like, did you type that right? Like MP3, like the audio file. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, everything we've heard thus far um, from good places, and it sucks. Like I hate that we can't be more specific about this stuff, but that's the catch twenty two, right? Like the only reason we know it is because we can't be specific about it. Um, exactly. And and even now, like a lot of stuff, most stuff that crosses our desks, like we don't talk about. Period. This is just a, a very very unique situation in that. You know, Apple just doesn't talk about these types of things, so so we do have to share some of it. But yeah, everything you and I have, have heard thus far um, points to five forty three MP three um, running at you know slightly higher frequencies, which makes sense. Again, you know, you could take an MP two, run it at twice the clocks, and get two x the performance. But then you run into that trade off of voltage versus power. Um, whereas if you are okay with spending a little bit more on the die area, you can run closer to lower voltages and, and thus you get uh, kind of better active power, um, which obviously matters a lot in a phone. Um, so that's the iPhone 5. Yep. And, uh, it doesn't sound like a lot when you look at it at a high level, but I guess it is a lot. So I mean, it's a lot because it's a you, forward. you have to think the number of folks that have to work on every component here. Right. And, and this is what what is kind of. Oh, and don't I, forget I've, dual band Wi-Fi. Oh, my gosh. Dual band yes. Wi-Fi. Finally. Thank God. Do you know we don't know if you'll have five gigahertz Wi-Fi tethering, though? No, no, we already do. It does not have five gigahertz Wi-Fi tethering from uh, the FCC what? docs. Yeah. Not uh, OK. Why is that? Why does no one support that? I don't know. Just a decision. I, I honestly don't. There, there's no reason why it couldn't. It's probably just a driver host AP or whatever 
you know, Broadcom. That's really annoying to me because that that's that's one of the things. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things that would be super useful. Um, But you know, whatever. Um, So yeah, like I was saying, the 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 thing that I've really grown to appreciate about all these companies is you look at what has to happen, right? So you have a team that's responsible for getting this in-touch display to work. You have a team that's responsible for integrating LTE. You have the OS team. You have a team that's responsible for the ASICs. And even within the ASICs, you have a team that's designing a brand new CPU core, a team that's working on the memory controller, the new ISP, right? You have a, a, a team that's working on integrating the graphics controller. And all of these teams full of very smart people who run into very big issues, they all have to coordinate and deliver a product that ships at the same time. Yearly, yeah. Right? Like, it's not like, well, you know, hey, we ran into a problem with, hey, our A6 doesn't work as well as we thought it would. We'll need another three weeks. Like, that doesn't fly. Everyone has to be ready because we have to be in stores September 21st. So you guys have to be done with your work three months prior. And then everything that happens, and everyone has to be done with their work at the exact same time. And it's like this across the industry, right? Like, you look at... uh designing a cpu you have you know there's not these things are way too big and way too complex for one guy to own everything now right so you have a guy working on some fpu unit somewhere and you have another guy working on an out of order component like an execution or a scheduling window or something like that and all of these folks have to do their completely different tasks and just ship a product on the exact same day which is unfathomable to me right like it's it's i look at how hard it is to get you know, just a bunch of folks working on different things to to kind of all stay in sync. And we're talking about hundreds of engineers working on completely different areas of a design. And it's just, it's, I don't know, it's always been really impressive to me. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's, there's just so much that can go wrong here that it's amazing always that it even comes out. So we didn't that, talk that, too much about camera, but I think, you know, the camera thing, it didn't really... Like, even though the specs didn't improve, the system got thinner, just like we said it would. So that's interesting, too. And there's the Sapphire window thingy, which is pretty cool. And they're doing... Do you have any insight into what they're doing? They they said they have, like, much better low-light performance by some weird combining of pixel data. Yeah, they said they they computationally combine a couple exposures, and then you just get a... You know, you can... I mean, you can do this, right? Like, it's sort of... Uh, instead of binning in space, you're binning in time. So they must do that. I don't know how they get around the shakes. They must um, they must just integrate and then use the same the same sort of edge detection and merge functionality that they do with HDR because they yeah. actually do they do some feature extraction and then piece the images back together carefully, uh, you know, so that the same features line up. So I suspect that they've used some of what they've learned there to do the multiple multiple exposure combination for you know low light yeah and you know i didn't realize it initially but the panorama app works on the 4s too so the the panorama comes to the 4s as well oh cool and and you tested that feature that that worked really well and quick yeah it works really well it works well on the 4s too so that's that's pretty much done in software then so yeah they seem to they seem to be doing you know a really good implementation that isn't just you take three different exposures at different fields of view and then you know match them up they take like a little like i think it's a 16 pixel block there's some block that they sort of take a strip of and then integrate over 
which is the you know the right way to do things because it's, it's much you know smoother and there's less craziness at the edges so yeah i tested on the 4s and it looks great as well cool um so yeah that's that's iphone 5 comes out september 21st um you're flying back the day it comes out right yeah so i should get home and then it should be there i did the mail option okay you're you're flying to new york right that day no no so i'm i'm in new york i fly to new york um tomorrow right no what day well so so this will air on monday so yeah the day after monday so on tuesday i fly to new york i'll get back the night it comes in um and then there's just i guess we just go straight to work on it yeah that'll be fun we'll see how yeah, that, that you got yours on at&t right yes uh, same same that's what i did yeah a lot of folks i think um after the uh uh, all the voice LTE stuff happened on Verizon. I, I had a lot of emails from people saying that they wish they knew about that earlier and they, they would have switched to AT&T as a result. Really? Yeah, no, it was uh, actually a lot of folks on our server team, um, uh, like John and wow. yeah, they were, they were just like, Oh man, it's, it's uh, that, that was enough for them to want to switch. Well, that's for them. They probably want to be, you know, if they're on the call and something's down, yes. they want to be able to go and reload it and test or have console. So, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, this is like if you have a use case that definite, definitely depends on it, then there's just it's really unfortunate, but you're just you're SOL here. Yeah. And I think the other thing is the... I think the other thing is AT&T just isn't as bad as it used to be here. Yeah, they still have a huge stigma attached sadly, but it's gotten a lot better. Yeah. Um there there's still times when it's I, I agree completely unusable and I, I probably I'll regret saying this come CES next year. But um Oh god, yeah. I, you see I miss I missed the old CES when um like two years ago when LTE was brand new. Yes. You had to be like a who's who to have an LTE dongle because it was like <laughs> flawless. Yeah. The same with this last CES with ATT LTE because ATT LTE had just started yep. and it was like flawless. Like you could do twenty megabits on the show floor. And I know yeah, that this that's... year it's just going to be unworkable, like just no. back to literally not being able to do anything. Yeah, it's going to be terrible again. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to talk about Haswell a bit. Um, we are running kind of long here. Um, maybe we save a lot of the Haswell discussion for for next time. We can get Ian back on as well. That would be cool. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, and then that'll, that'll give me time. Like it'll give us stuff to talk about because I'll have... Uh, you know, the Haswell architect, uh, architecture piece is, I would say, probably 40% of the way done at this point. Um, Any other good couple of days of writing on it. Um, I mean, at a high level, so Haswell is really interesting. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of give you a teaser here. Um, so, there, you know, Haswell really plays two, potentially three roles in the world. Um, as far as desktop users are concerned, as far as if you have a normal-sized notebook, um, Haswell is just kind of a better version of of what we have right now with ivy bridge so it's still 22 nanometer but it's a talk um you kind of get more execution use resources you have fma supports a better floating point performance um you have uh much better bandwidth on the chip itself obviously much better graphics performance as well so everything kind of gets better perform uh, power consumption will actually drop a little bit at the platform level um you know even for desktop stuff like that so there's some improvements there but that is largely evolutionary then there's Haswell's other side, right? So Haswell ULT, 
um, or Haswell U. It's basically the ultra low volt part that'll go into Ultrabooks, MacBook Air, all those kinds of devices. So those parts get really interesting because when you implement one of them, you don't just, it's, it's one, you get a single chip solution. So it's a full blown SOC now. Um, whereas for desktops and traditional notebooks, even today you have uh, the CPU and the PCH, like the PCH handles, um, like all of your SATA and all of that. Uh, ULT has well, single chip, just like you would get in a tablet or a smartphone. Wow, so in addition, they have all the IO on, on their SOC then. Yep, it is, it wow. is a single chip. that part. Awesome. Yeah, so it's um, so so that's where Haswell's a bit different, right? You get a single chip, integrated graphics. Um, you know, there's this whole discussion about them doing also some unpackaged DRAM for uh, uh, for better performance as well. Although Intel hasn't publicly confirmed that yet, um, and then all the I/O is on there as well. So you get the single chip solution, but it doesn't end there. So if you implement one of these Ultrabook class Haswells, Intel actually also goes in and specs the rest of the platform for you. So they go in and spec other microcontrollers. They spec voltage regulators. That that part, the the single chip part, also integrates some of the VR stages. Some of the voltage regulator station uh, stages are actually moved onto the chip itself. So Intel specs the whole platform at that point. Um, obviously, you still get components from third parties, but they're components that Intel has worked with and understands, and so on and so forth. And they're all optimized for power. And what they do is when you have this kind of Haswell U, Haswell ULT platform, you now enable this new set of uh, sleep states. So traditionally, if your system is up and running, you're kind of working in what the ACPI spec calls uh, S0. So uh, you're not asleep. Everything's running at full speed. If you shut the lid on it, you typically these days you go into what's known as S3 or suspend RAM. In these Haswell ULT parts, you stop going to S3. You instead go into a new set of sleep states that are defined as S0IX, where the X can be a number of like one, two, three, whatever. And in these states, the entire platform actually is constantly trying to go to sleep. And it can just wake up really, really quickly to fetch new data, get IMs, get tweets, so on and so forth. The whole platform ends up performing a lot like a smartphone or a tablet. That's actually where this was inspired from. Like the, the, the whole S0IX set of sleep states was first debuted in Moorestown. Um, and you only get that with this, this Haswell U, Haswell ULT platform. And it's with that that you get this up to 20x reduction in idle platform power. Which is huge, right? That gives you potentially much, much longer battery life while your system's still up and running and doing useful things. Um, so that's the kind of secondary role of Haswell. Third role of Haswell, which is not very well defined right now. So Haswell ULT starts at 10 watts, um, down from 17 in Ivy Ridge. And that, that power savings is not only through architecture changes, through integrated voltage regulators, through all of that, but it's also through these platform level advancements. Right. So Intel gave an example where they had there was this one microcontroller they found a lot of OEMs using. And through a firmware change, they went from 30 milliwatts of power consumption down to five. Um, so it's really stuff wow. like that. Right. Like just pushing the OEMs to say, hey, look, just you have to pay attention to everything in the system now. So the third category of, of Haswell is uh, kind of undefined. It doesn't have a, a name that we can say publicly yet. But Intel hinted at it, and they said, you know, Haswell could, as an architecture, go below 10 watts. And in their demo at IDF, they had it running Unigen and consuming somewhere between 7 to 8 watts, so the whole SOC. 
And the kind of implication there, and, and obviously Intel didn't say a lot of stuff about this, but they were like, look, once you get below 10 watts and you start talking 7 or 8 watts, which is what they're demoing today, which means they could go lower in the future, um, that's low enough for you to get into some interesting form factors. And when I say interesting, I'm talking... Yeah, you don't need a skirt around saying a tablet or a smartphone yeah, or something. Exactly, right? So you're talking um, not phone yet, but definitely tablet. Yeah. And not not just any tablet. You're talking this is this is not far off of where ARM is. So that's kind of interesting. Um I, I don't uh, I don't expect that we'll see those types of Haswell platforms until the end of next year at the earliest. Um but that'll be the starting point. And then you add on what Broadwell brings, so a shrink to 14 nanometer, where you can cut power down even more. And now we start getting into some really, really interesting use cases where you can get into very tiny devices, very power-constrained devices with top-tier, you know, Intel's core series architecture. You're not talking Atom anymore at this point. Um, so a lot of really cool stuff happens around Haswell. And, and it's, it's finally all beginning to click. Um, the other thing that, you know, the, the kind of epiphany that hit when we were going through all this A6 stuff was that... You know, if Haswell goes into single-digit power consumption, and if that's where Ultrabooks head, right, if that's where the Ultrabooks and, and let's say, the MacBook Air line go towards, then we're also in striking distance of ARM cores kind of being able to fit into those, those same power envelopes, right? When, when this rumor came out that Apple was thinking about ditching Intel, it never made sense to me because I always looked at Intel's role in Apple's lineup at, as 35 to 45 watts. Yeah. But if we're talking like sub 10 watts, and if A6 is really as good as, as it seems to be, you know, compared to other ARM architectures, um, and if Apple is able to continue iterating along that, you know, I can, I can definitely now see a, a, a path to Apple having maybe not a MacBook Air, but something MacBook Air-like driven by ARM Silicon. Um, I don't see this in the next two years, but now it's starting to make sense to me. Um, it's within the realm of possibility more, yes, more exactly. so than it was before. It, no, it, yeah. it totally is. Um, and if I'm in Intel shoes, that makes me nervous, right? Like if I'm, if I'm at Intel, <laughs> this, this is really bad that this even, that if I can connect these dots, that's a problem, right? It should, it should still be within the realm of absurdity. Um, so these next couple of years, I think, are going to really define and, and change a lot. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know what happens at the end of it. Um, the other interesting thing that I noticed at IDF, and actually um, a friend of mine who works at Intel pointed this out, that the, the discussion at IDF wasn't about Intel competing with NVIDIA or Intel competing with AMD. The only questions people asked were about Intel competing with Apple. Hmm. And that's a dramatic change from the way things used to be. Really? All the discussions focused around Intel versus Apple? What, what all the press were asking, like what really? everyone outside of Intel, like obviously Intel didn't say, hey, you know, oh. we're, well, I mean, you know, the I, press is one thing, I guess. That's just, but I, I never know whether to chalk that up to just ignorance or, um, you know, we want to talk about new shiny a lot. Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's clear, right? Like it, it used to be that AMD was such a threat or that NVIDIA graphics were, were such a, an important focus that everyone would say, look, you know, Intel, you're not catching up here. You're not doing what you need to do here. But now all the questions seem to be, okay, you're just clearly not doing enough in this space that Apple is very dominant in. Um, and yeah, I think some of that is obviously the timing of the event. 
But the fact that that's where a lot of the questions were coming from is, I mean, it tells you a lot about where Intel needs to at least exert, uh, assert its dominance. Yeah, yeah. I think, what, what was the standby power on, on Haswell, on the, the one that was under 10 watts? They didn't say, right? So that, that, that falls under the, um, uh, obviously it's greater than 20x improvement of, of idle power um, compared to whatever, uh, compared yeah. to Sandy Bridge. But Because um, I think a lot, of, a lot of people don't appreciate that, you know, there's active power, which in a smartphone is like a watt, you know, maybe a watt and a half for the whole system. You know, so really like under a watt for a CPU, maybe a watt. And then, there, you know, so that's when you're using the phone, like loading a web page, everything is fully loaded, everything is awake. But most of the time the phone is off in your pocket and that's all standby power. Yes. And that's really where if you integrate over all of that, that's where, you know, the battery life concerns start to become really important. And even in our battery life test, there's a significant amount of time that's just idle, which is why, you know, I think it's pretty realistic. And if, I mean, normal, I don't know if people realize this, but on Android phone, you can go and get an app and look at the state table and the time spent in state, like CPU spy, I'm always looking at. And, you know, for like my phone right now, 31 hours awake, 15 hours were spent in deep sleep, six hours were spent in the lowest state possible. And then seven hours were spent at five at one point five gigahertz. So I mean, really, that's the breakdown. If you want to look at what counts most for, you know, power consumption, if you're going to like armchair engineer this, I don't know. See, no, another no, tangent. I don't know how I got involved on that, but yeah. No, no. So you actually no, no. I don't think it's a tangent at all. I think it, you you hit on the exact point of Haswell, ULT, and beyond. Right. That standby power matters so much. That Intel had to go and stop. I mean, it, it, they couldn't stop at just the CPUs or the SOC silicon anymore. That they had to go in and now start specifying the rest of the platform. Yeah. All right, not saying that they're going to make every chip on the board, but they're going to make sure you choose the right chip everywhere on that motherboard. Um, yeah, which is so important in a notebook because you know there it's kind of a free for all still. Yeah. And so, so it's that I, I think standby power is very, very important. You know, the other thing that they're talking about. Uh, which Intel's talked about for quite a while now, um, panel self-refresh. So the idea is that when you're... Uh, so right now, if you're, you're just sitting there on your desktop, uh, you're still getting like the GPU's awake and it's still sending 60 updates a second to the display, even if nothing's changing. Panel self-refresh, you put some logic and DRAM on the panel itself. And if nothing's changing from what's being asked to be displayed then it can actually just keep displaying the same image and tell the SOC and the GPU to power down completely. So that's at least what Intel's saying is they're really trying to make that happen finally. They've been talking about this for years. They're really trying to make that happen with Haswell um, and with these Haswell ULT platforms um, because that, that's an easy, like low-hanging fruit way of, of cutting down on platform power consumption. Interesting. Well, what is the normal um, notebook interface for display anyways? I can't remember what it's called anymore. LVDS? Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. So it's either LVDS or, or um, EDP. Um, well, that's good. But, At least uh, it's not TMDS. No, so I mean, it used to be... away from TMDS. Yeah. Um, no, EDP, EDP, I believe, is the that's the kind of where folks are going now. Um, so just display but, port. Gotcha. Exactly. Embedded. Yes. Um, 
so panel self refresh, uh, I don't know that that's really exciting because so so then you could take it that that's that's kind of the low hanging fruit, right? Then there's the next step where you know let's say all that's changing is the position of your cursor, right? And and don't think about this in in you know folks listening, don't think about this as as well. I'm just leaving a, a my computer at an empty screen for for hours. You know, even if you can keep the CPU asleep for seconds or fractions of a second, that's still savings in, in idle power, considerable savings, right? And, and just looking at it at that granularity is important. But so you get to this point with, with kind of the next generation of panel self-refresh where let's say only the cursor is moving or a small percentage of the screen is changing. You can still do the same thing, right? Just move some of that, offload some of that update work onto the display and, and power everything else down. So Haswell is just really, the, the platform is just really about, uh, it's truly a platform now. It's about using everything more efficiently. Um, so yeah, that's the Haswell teaser. Uh, Brian, any, any last words before we end here? We're almost at the two-hour mark. You know what, I want to, <laughs> it's dumb. So I have a little bit of congestion, which is why my voice sounds weird. But also I'm on the ear pods. Did you play around with your ear pods? No, I haven't actually. There's still like a, so Apple gave us all they they sampled us with um, the new headphones that are going to come with the iPhone five and the new iPod Touch, um, and they're called EarPods. Uh, so what do you think? You you like them? Well, they were like, oh, it took three years of work, and we like we three D scanned everybody's ears, and we came up with what the lowest common denominator for an ear hole is, and we engineered all these interesting and novel things like you know like some sort of acoustic chamber and there's these little apertures. I mean, I think it sounds better. I, it's still, it's still not necessarily worth $30, you know, but it, it, at least it comes with the device, you know, it's substantially better than the old ones, which were terrible yeah. just around like way longer than they should have been. And when I look at those ones, I, I view it as like, they were, they're sort of analogous to the original mouse, you know, the Apple mouse that was like the UFO mouse yeah like they're circular and they looked cool but they never fit in anybody's ears right yes these ones do but they're still not great but the microphone is pretty good like i brought along some logitechs and this seems to be less noisy less background hiss than uh than those at least on the microphone but so i don't know i'm just curious what you thought no i haven't even used them yet man i like i've been just traveling and trying to get stuff written yeah. up i i, yeah. I, I need <laughs> well, to I actually tried them just... on the plane and then i tried them when i was um when i was at home because i was like i want to write i need to include something about this no no i thought you did but... a great job on that um so so here's the question you said they're not worth 30 dollars. they're great for free which is what you know you'll get when you buy a new iphone which is good um what would you buy and at what price point if if someone wants a better you know in-ear experience I think Sennheiser's Sennheiser has a really good low-end brand, you know. Yeah. And I think they have some that are only thirty dollars. Sony does too. Oh, Honestly, awesome. I, I don't play in the like earbud thing as nearly as much as the IEMs, you know, like in-ear monitors. Like I think earbuds are just going to sound terrible because they don't isolate. So what's just the difference between IEMs. what's the difference between IEMs and earbuds? IEMs like seal against your ear canal. Um, earbuds just sit in your ear canal with no seal. Okay. These don't make a seal at all. In fact, they're open sort of with these weird apertures. Yeah. Whereas, so, you know, IEMs, you have a little foam thing that you crush up, and then you stick that in your ear canal, and then it expands and forms a seal. Okay. So, so I have a bunch of Shures that I use, and those sound great. 
So Sennheiser at $30 for earbuds, and then Shure's at what price point for IEMs? Ooh, you know, I don't know what the Shure, the SE-115s are great. Those are the lowest ends. Um, I'm sure there's there's somebody I'm going to get an email that's like, you should go with these. I don't know what like the best one ever is. I gotcha. I no, I'm just looking SE for your... The SE-115s are like 80 bucks. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's... I have it's... some SE-535s, which are like 500 bucks, and those are great. Like, those are all I carry anymore. And yeah, those, I, are, those aren't even as expensive as everything gets. Like, um, I don't know. You can go to Ultimate Ears and get just like crazy things that are thousands. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably under the like. I literally, I have the really old um, earbuds from the iPhone right now. That's what I'm using to to record this. Not, not, not obviously for speaking. I've got the the Blue Yeti here, but um, oh, to listen to. Yeah, to listen to. They're fine. Like, they just, I have so many of them that I can just leave them places. So I never have to, like, go hunting for them. They're just everywhere. See, they're great for conference calls. Yes. They're just really great for that. Because you don't want to hold the phone to your head for 30 minutes. Except maybe I do now with the new ear, like, noise canceling earpiece, right? That's, That's a sensation true. that I just want all the time now, apparently. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, different. It definitely feels <laughs> weird. Like, like, I think people listening to this, if the feature is enabled, hopefully you don't do anything crazy like disable it right before it comes out. But I think people will immediately notice that. And it, it feels weird. So here's, and, and let's, let's end on this question. Um, AT&T has stopped doing the, you know, everyone gets the, the free upgrade, you know, for $199 yearly for the iPhone thing. Um, so, so now if you bought the 4S this becomes a much more expensive upgrade if you're on AT&T and Verizon too, I'm assuming, right? You got the 199 upgrade? Really? No, 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 I didn't. They, they stopped that, right? But I never got that, like, ever. From 4 to 4S, or uh, 3GS to 4, 4 to 4S, I never got that. I always got, like, a partial update. Really? So, no, I subsidy? had it. I, I had the full subsidy um, for every generation of the iPhone. This is the first one where I have it. Weird. No, I always got the partial subsidy that was, like, you still have to pay us 500 bucks, which is what I got this time. Yeah. And so I just, no, so, I haven't, I used my gift card. Yeah. This was the first time for me that I, that I had that. So the question is, do you believe that this is going to be a worthy upgrade or, or is, is it too early to tell? Do we have to, we need, we need if more hands on Verizon, It's definitely a huge up, upgrade just because of LTE. Like eVideo for me is miserable. Yes. Um, if you're on Sprint and you're in one of the lucky LTE markets, same deal. I think, yeah, LTE is just a big, big thing. And I think for a lot of people, are, they're going to be very surprised about how much different it feels. You know, I hear, I read a lot, do you really need 20 megabits on a phone? Oh, totally. And, I, yeah, I think the answer is yes. Yeah, because of those, <laughs> peak, those peak moments when you're loading things initially, the throughput does matter. Yes. And... Um, an OFDMA release just in general is, is so much better in terms of the weird, when you're in weird situations with noise and it, it using the right subcarrier that has no noise, no fading. I think it's worth it. Yeah. If you're on AT&T, it's maybe not as much, but if you're on Verizon, this is like a huge step forwards. Yeah, that's true. I guess I, I didn't even look at it from that respect because I, I just, I, I, I always forget how slow EVDO is. Um, it is really slow. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is really slow, sadly. 
<laughs> okay, well, I think that's a good note to, to end on. Um, Brian, enjoy the rest of your time in Korea. And uh, I guess the, uh, the next episode we do will, um, you know, obviously touch on more of the IDF stuff, uh, begin to touch on uh, how iPhone 5 testing is going as, as we'll be just starting on that pretty much. Um, so yeah, that's all. Thank you all for listening. For and and of course, thanks everyone who uh, helped stress the the servers out with the the live blog and for supporting us there as well. Um, and we will we'll talk again in a week. Yeah. See you then.